It's time to turn out the lights, grab some popcorn, and watch some horrible horror movies. This is the Terrible Terror Podcast. Each episode, I delve into the world of terrible horror movies. Why do I do it? Well, I can't really explain it, but I love these horrible movies. If you made a horror movie on your phone or made your own special effects MacGyver style, please send it my way. Now, what do you get when you mix a cop drama with a supernatural force who loves a specific Rolling Stones song while you get the film Fallen? Yes, it is. Time is on my side. That song stuck in my head for this past what the fuck that I've watched this damn movie. It is so, like, littered throughout this film. Oh, hi. Welcome to the Terrible Terror Podcast. I'm already starting off after I've started the goddamn thing. But honestly, like, that song is used to represent when the well, fallen angels round okay i'm not gonna ruin a whole lot for you by saying what the movie's really about because the movie well the trailer kind of tells you what it is so if you listen to it at the end of the last podcast you already know what's going on here we're here to talk about the denzel and john goodman classic uh fallen which i do kind of say it's a classic it's very very interesting and yes, I know, it's not truly a horror film, but it is a supernatural thriller. And uh, it's something that I've wanted to talk about in a while. And I figured that with February now here, and the second pick of the month, is also kind of a supernatural type of movie. It's also kind of a thriller, a little less than a horror, at least in my opinion. And you'll find out what that movie is at the end of the podcast. Uh, but I figured let's do two similar style of movies, at least with the supernatural aspect. So, you can call this Supernatural Month if you want. You can do whatever it is. It is, well, I want to fucking talk about Fallen, and then I want to, you know, I'm going to go into this other movie. That was a good recommendation, uh, and it's a film that I haven't seen yet before. So, even though they're kind of different, they're kind of the same in some aspects. So, I'm looking very forward to uh, talking about that other film. So, but without getting into that... Because honestly, this is a very hard episode to do. It's one of those ones where, one, the film is over two hours. Well, it's like two hours and four minutes. It's over an hour and a half. Let's say that instead. Normally, I like to keep the movies around 90 minutes because going through the process of doing everything with this film, it takes me a lot longer when the film is a lot longer. Like with Van Helsing, for example, that episode of the podcast took me a lot longer to get prepared than any other ones that I had done prior to then. Because with an hour and a half movie, you kind of get to the meat of things. And that one, you know, it's not as meaty as this film is. And since this film is not necessarily the nonstop, heart-pounding action thriller that something like End of Days was, where you could say, well, that's not really a horror movie either, 
that's more of an action thriller supernatural horror thing yeah i get it okay i'm stepping away from what i said what the podcast would be but it's still fun to talk about you know when you're you're looking at something that's different but the the problem and i'll say this right away instead of like waiting oh i'm gonna wait till the middle or the end and really get to it because sometimes i do lose my thoughts when i record these and i'm like oh shit i was gonna talk about this and i didn't uh but i want to say this right up right away if anybody hasn't seen this film before the first hour of this movie drags it drags and one point i wrote in my notes i said this is going to be a hard podcast and it's not just because it drags like because the film itself is like dragging along it is very interesting but it's very dialogue heavy and it moves at a snail's pace they really could cut about a half an hour of stuff out and you'd still understand what's going on because a lot of the really really interesting stuff and the better parts of the movie really are within the last hour of the film i mean we set up our main character hobbs here for a lot of the first part of the movie and it's crazy that we spend so much time in this part of the film kind of leading up to the the hour-long climax that we have where we could have spent so little time within that it's just an odd film in that way it's really a tale of two films to be honest with you a very kind of gritty like cop drama in the beginning of it where they're figuring out what's gone on with this killer uh to the supernatural side of things that we get in the second half of the movie. It's very, very odd, but somehow it does work. I'm not sure why it does or how it does, but it ultimately comes down to some of the performances in the film, and there's one of my favorite performances by one of my favorite actors and comedians of all time. That would be John Goodman. Yes, I'm putting him in the comedian category because he did... At least for me, I started seeing him in Roseanne, right? In those comedic roles. And I know he's been in movies like Chud, which is funny and as it is. I mean, it was just a small role. But also Revenge of the Nerds. That's a pretty memorable role of his, which is also comedy. Uh, and plenty of other things. You know, he did a guest spot on The Simpsons way back in the day. Uh, he was also randomly in a uh, Talking Heads-like thing as a singer in uh, Wild Wild Live. He was in Raising Arizona, which is kind of a comedic performance as well. So, to me, I see him kind of first as a comedian and then as a dramatic actor. But maybe, depending on when you've seen him, maybe you who are listening here remember him, you know, as the voice of Sully from Monsters, Inc. And that's where you place him from. And you're like, oh my god, that's where I remember that voice from. Or maybe even further back. Not much further back, but with the Emperor's New Groove. And... You kind of remember more as a voice actor or, you know, doing the more serious roles. Maybe your most recent memory of him is Kong Skull Island, where he plays, you know, one of the guys that wants to take the expedition over there to Skull Island to find King Kong. Who, wherever you see him from, I still think that he's a great comedic actor. And this was the first time I'd ever really seen him in a role where I felt it was truly dramatic. Yes, before this, King Ralph, which is kind of, again, a comedic role, but The Babe, Matinee, uh, those roles are, they're very different. I think it kind of let him be more of himself, but this was also kind of a weird role, too. But I really think at the end of this film, he has a lot of fun doing what he got to do. It's almost like watching 
No, it's not quite that crazy. But I was going to say, it's almost like watching Nicolas Cage in Face Off when he gets to be John Travolta, and John Travolta gets to be him, where they're all like, crazy, crazy, uh, you know, he's like crazy psycho killer, he's ridiculous Cage at that point, rather than just standard, like, Nicolas Cage. Anyway, I'm getting really off the point in talking about how John Goodman is some big comedic actor and not just the drama actor that you see him kind of as now today. So we should get back to the podcast as it is. Now again, like I said before, this was really hard to do. And the main reason that it's hard to do is because it's so meaty. Right? The clips are very long. The clips can be kind of dense. Uh, they happen a lot, at least when I was going through the film, like, it was so hard to be like, oh, well, that's important, and this is important, and whatever, and then I come back, and I do what I normally do, and then, oh my god, uh, this is way too fucking much, so I cut some clips, I also took some of the clips that I did, and, uh, I combined them, uh, there are some where some of the dead air is taken out. It's a little longer than it should be. There's other clips where they're longer than, you know, I normally try to keep the clips around. The max I try to do in most episodes is about a minute, and some here go two minutes or more. And it's just because I want to I want to get this stuff out there because it is so dense, and they're constantly fucking talking in this movie. And not a lot is going on outside of all that talking. So it gets really annoying after a while when you're trying to figure out exactly where I need to put these clips, how I need to explain other things that are going on, and what can I cut? What type of fat can I trim from this whole thing? So I'm going to do my best to piece together this movie based upon the clips that I do. Uh, Without trying to miss too much, there are going to be things that I'm going to skip over, and some of it is going to be kind of intentional because really they don't pop up later on in the film. So without further ado, let's go ahead and I've already spent what 10 minutes fucking ranting on just John Goodman, uh, the Rolling Stones song, and how difficult this podcast is to do for this episode. Uh, <laughs> and I'm still going on, but let's let's get right into the meat of the film. So we begin the film with a little monologue from. Denzel Washington, and he looks really, really young in this film. I mean, it is from 98, and honestly, you know the saying, black don't crack, and that's honestly totally true when it comes to Denzel Washington, because even though he looks young here, like, he doesn't look like, oh my god, you look like you're 20 years younger, 30 years younger, like, he looks like maybe he's 10 years younger. Of course, if you look at him in the most recent film and then you compare him to this and you put him side by side, you'd be like, okay, I get it. He looks quite a bit younger. But, like, even on the first, like, viewing of this, I was like, wow, that's a young Denzel. And then I was like, huh, as you watch the movie, I'm like, he really hasn't changed a whole lot outside of this. Well, the biggest thing that there is to start with the movie is that it starts with a monologue with him running through the forest and he's explaining about the he's going to tell us a story about the time that he almost died i never thought it would happen to me not at this age beaten i was smart how did i get into this fix how did it all begin no 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 if i go back to the beginning that'll take forever so let's start more recently somewhere anyway So, we go back in time a little bit, and there's something that I want to say here, but I feel if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen this film, 
I honestly don't want to give away a big portion that happens in the middle of the film just yet. See, when I said before we started the whole thing that it's a tale of two halves, really there's a lead up for the first hour of this film to the revelation that Hobbes has as a cop about what's going on. And then the last hour of the film is something completely different. And there's something with the monologue pieces that I don't want to give away, because it gives away two things. It gives away the ending, and it gives away what happens in the middle of the film. And if you haven't seen it yet, and you're just listening to the podcast to be like, oh, I'm just enjoying it, and maybe I want to see the film after I do it, this is a difficult one to be like, wait to the end, because it may not be your cup of tea. Like, not to say watch the whole film, then come back. If you've seen it, you you know what I'm talking about right now. <laughs> and I have to be a little vague. Uh, if you haven't seen it, you're like, just fucking spit it out already, because I really want to know, but we'll get to that in the middle. But just listen on how the different monologues go and the way the tone is. The tone is different in different areas of the film. And that doesn't give anything away right now, but it does give away something much later on in the film, and especially the ending of the film. So just look out for that and see how things are going. So from here, we go and we're in the past a little bit. We're now basically outside of a prison cell where this criminal, Edgar Reese, he's going to be executed that night. And we see Denzel, he walks up, and he starts talking with Donald Sutherland, who plays his boss, Stan. Uh, And they kind of go on, there's a little back and forth between the two of them, you know, this is supposedly the eighth one that uh, Denzel's Hobbs has put away. I'm gonna have a hard time going between Hobbs and Denzel, so fucking deal with it. Anyway, he goes inside because Reese wants to see him one last time before he's put down. And they have a little bit of a weird conversation that goes on that includes Reese speaking in some weird type of tongue when he tries to shake his hand for that final time. So what is this? They're making you famous now or what? Oh, big time. They're going to put me in the movies. Documentary. Oh, oh courtesy of the ACLU. Shoot me getting smoked. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it'd be a big video rental. All these society ladies showing it to their dinner guests, you know. Ooh, you see that there? Ooh, that's a urine state, ladies. <laughs> oh my, it's not urine. <laughs> it's good to see you, huh? Yeah, it's good to be seen by you, Reese. Sure. You're, uh, you're my best pal. You're still a good fellow. You know, you remind me of somebody, Hobbs. Oh, indeed you do. Indeed you do. Do you like riddles? No, I don't. Here's a beaut. Why is there a space between lions and Spikowski? What? Come on, you should know this one, pal. You should know this one. Open your eyes. Look around sometime. 
Okay, the first thing that Denzel needs to fucking do is stop chewing that fucking gum. It is fucking annoying. The entire fucking family is... Like, he does this constantly. And the reason is, and you learn out later, that he quit smoking. I'm going to give that fucking right away right now. And we don't really not going to talk about it for any point in the movie. That's the reason why he has a ton of fucking gum in his entire fucking mouth the whole fucking movie. And it's the most disgusting thing that's constantly happening because he doesn't know how to just chew fucking gum. It's got to be that annoying fucking chewing that normally goes on when you're a fucking slob, okay? Fucking learn how to chew gum or don't fucking chew it at all. In fact, just go back to fucking smoking. Who gives a shit because somebody's going to fucking pop you one Because you won't stop chewing the fucking gum like a fucking Neanderthal, man. Just learn to fucking chew gum and everything will be okay. Or just go back to fucking slowly killing yourself. That would be fine. Okay, Hobbs? Can you please fucking do that? (sighs) So, from this point, after I'm already annoyed that he fucking doesn't know how to chew gum like a fucking normal person... Uh, we see that Reese is taken out of his cage, and he's seriously, like, dressed like Hannibal Lecter. I'm not talking about being strapped down in, like, the handcart thing or wearing a straight jacket or anything like that. But it's just, like, the white shirt and the jeans, you know? It really feels like they tried to give a Silence of the Lambs-type vibe to this guy. And I know this actor. I don't know him by name, but he's been in a lot of, like, minor roles here or there. And he actually does a pretty good job in just this little scene. And I really wish he was in a lot more of it, uh, because, honestly, I was very interested in the way that he was doing things. I felt like, oh, hey, he's gonna get away or something, but... Nope, of course, they just fucking gas him, and that's it. Except for we get this weird sequence where the camera goes all funky, and if you really don't know anything about the film, you don't know what the fuck is going on right now. But we do get a little bit of a monologue over the top of this with Denzel. Something is always happening. But when it happens, people don't always see it. Or understand it. Or accept it. So without giving everything away, which I'm probably going to anyway by saying this, that weird camera that you see is demon or fallen angel cam. It's whenever he changes bodies outside of his body. Or she, or where the fuck it is, okay? It's a demon and it doesn't necessarily have to have a fucking sex. Get over it. So, demon guy here... Uh, I'm going to use he because it's fucking easier to talk that way for me right now. Especially with my mind going fucking south. You know, I'm old. Leave me the fuck alone. So, demon guy. Whenever he gets outside of the body or you're in the body that he's possessing at that current time. It goes into this weird like slanted camera with some shitty Instagram filter on top of it. And you're watching it and it's just odd. I don't know why they really did this, and like I said before, if you haven't even seen the trailer of this film, you wouldn't really know what was going on. The trailer kind of gives some of it away, saying it has to do with some type of fallen angel or demon thing, which is fine, but you don't know exactly like how things go or things work in this universe. You, I guess maybe you kind of do, but... You may not remember. You might have just seen the trailer like, man, that looks kind of interesting. Let's go see it. Or if you were like me, where I was just like, hey, I saw... I remember seeing it in front of a movie. And 
I don't remember anything else about it when I was a kid, but I remember saying, Mom, Dad, I really want to go see this film. They looked at me and they said, hey, this isn't another species, is it? And I said, no, this isn't a species. This is something that I want to see. And I don't remember where it came out. I think it came out during the summer before I left for college. It might have come out afterwards some point during the rest of the year, maybe when I came back home. But I remember going with them and to see this movie. And honestly, it was one of those things where it was... I, I wasn't sure exactly what was happening. You know something weird is going on here, but I would have liked them to give a little bit more information in terms of the film at this point in the movie. It would be cool to have just something, maybe the beginning of it, talk about the angels as thing. but I understand there's a reason why the beginning's done the way that it's done, and it's done for the end of the film, which... I, again, I don't want to like talk about it right now, but I want to talk about it so bad. Oh boy. Anyway, so uh, he ends up well. From what we can see, some poor ginger cop, because of course you know ginger cops have no fucking soul. Uh, he manages to get into that guy's body and move along, and we end up going and seeing Denzel and his crew. They're celebrating at a bar. And of course, uh, there's some, and it's weird, when you think about it in this day and age, would they have written this type of dialogue, and would you have had this type of response to it? So, it's very odd, the statement that he makes here in this little clip that I'm going to play for you, but it does give you a sense of Hobbes' character at the same time. And we also get to be introduced to both John Goodman's character, Jonesy, as well as a very young James Gandolfini before he became a mobster. He was one of the most notorious inmates in this prison. There you go. Thank you, sir. Yeah. You're an unusual cop, Hobbs. Really? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've been in this precinct about, what, uh, five, six months? And everybody says, Hobbs don't take no green. Hobbs don't take no green. Now, is that true or what? No, I don't like green. Yeah. That means no. Yeah, means no. How's that? No, as in never, no, as in sometimes, or no, as in I do, but uh, I don't like to talk about it. No, as in never. This is a, a, a big city, Hamzi. We, we got a tradition up there. You got something wrong with your ears. A man says something, he says it. It's a hypothetical. You know, a cop who's trying to make ends meet, you know, wants a little something on the side. I don't like cream, and I don't judge. You don't judge. Fucking saint, huh? So you're telling me that under no circumstances would, would a holy man like you ever, you know, break the law, do something. Look, Lou. I can jump across the table, right? Snatch your heart right out of your chest. My bad hand. Squeeze the blood out of it and stick it in your front pocket. I could do that. Yeah? Yeah. If I lost control. But if I did, I would be no different than the people we bust. Now. As to your general question, you take any cop out on the force, cream or no, 99% of the time, they're doing their job, aren't they? 99.5. 0.5. So he or she, cream or no, is doing more good out there on the street every day than any uh, lawyer or stockbroker or uh, president of the United States can ever do in their lifetime. Ah, cops are the chosen people. Amen. 
So it's, like I said, it's a very weird statement nowadays, and I really don't want to get into the whole thing about it. But the big point I want to make about it is that he believes the cops do the right thing, no matter if they're already doing the wrong thing, right? So if somebody takes a little something on the side for whatever reason it is, even though they're doing that, they still can be good cops because they're still doing the right thing overall, which is to protect and serve people. You can argue with it. I'm not going to get into it. But I thought it was very interesting just to hear that point of view coming from him and what happens with him later on in the film. From here, we jump over to a crowded street scene. And this is a very odd scene, again, if you have no idea what's going on and you don't know what the rules of the world are. Because it's see you see that one cop, the ginger cop that has no soul, suddenly show up and then it's like fucking dominoes or some type of Rube Goldberg machine where they just fucking bump into everybody. The cop bumps into one guy who bumps into somebody else and bumps into that person and bumps over here and touches there and does all this stuff to the point that we see this guy named Charlie tell his boss that he can take this sandwich and shove it right up his ass along with the fucking job and leaves the scene. It's a very odd scene. And it makes sense later on in the film when we get to the point to talk about it. But to see it right up front, you're like, this is a waste of like five minutes of the film. Like, why do I need to go through this? It's setting something up, but it would be nice if we already knew what it was trying to set up if we had never seen the film before. And this, again, is a major complaint about the whole first half of the movie until we learn something else about the film and about the way things work. It makes no sense why you show us something like this. It it, it does, in, in a sense, it does, okay? I get it. Once we know it, I get it. But since I don't know anything as a viewer, I mean, I've seen the film already. And again, I was like, wait, this scene is very, very odd that they're doing this and that we're seeing this character act this specific way. But since we know already that there's been a transference of the demon that we have to gather that it has something to do with that, but there isn't anything to basically say it out front. And I'm not saying that, hey, we're stupid as viewers, and this is the only way that we can understand it, but we don't. Like in Terminator, for example, let's let's go over that the time-traveling rule. We get it. We see it for the first time, but we get it explained to us relatively quick after that. And then when we see it again, we know exactly what's going on. I think we even get it explained to us in the beginning of the goddamn thing when he's trying to travel through. Oh, your clothes aren't going to go with you. It's just going to be you when you get there. You can't carry weapons or anything with you into the past. Uh, You can only bring yourself. That's the only way that they'll be able to do it. And they believe they couldn't do it because the Terminators, you know, were metal and couldn't send that through into the past. So it's... an odd thing of course they didn't say anything about like fillings or anything like that but then again if it's covered by skin we're not getting into the terminator shit but we at least know something right we we get it we see him when he pops up naked even if you never saw the terminator you kind of get terminator 2 when that happens at the beginning or they make fun of it but if you've seen the terminator and they do it in terminator 2 you know exactly the reasons why he's showing up like that Somebody like me doesn't understand because I saw Terminator 2 before I saw the Terminator. Because I wasn't allowed to see the Terminator. Okay, I'm getting off topic once again. But here, we we don't know the rules. We don't know what's going on with the angel. All we know right now, or the 
demon or whatever the fuck it wants to be. All we know right now is that there's basically fucking pinball of people bumping into each other and a guy tells another guy to fuck off. I'm done with this job. Uh, It's so weird. We go to the next morning and we see that Denzel's waking up in the middle of the night and he's getting a phone call, but there's nobody else on the other line. He hangs up goes back to sleep, wakes up in the morning, and we get to meet his brother and his nephew, Sam and Art. Art's a little slow. Sam, he seems like a normal kid. There's conversation between Art and Sam, and Art feels like he's a burden upon his brother because he said if uh, Hobbs' wife liked him more, that maybe she would have stayed, and Hobbs is like, no, family comes first. So you learn that Hobbs is a very big family man just from this little bit of dialogue here. And then you also learn that, hey, it doesn't matter. She left me first. You know, I didn't leave her. So it, it's an interesting situation, but it, it only really builds the character of of Hobbs. I was about to say Sam, but Sam really is... We'll get to him later. <laughs> he, he's... Uh, it's, it's another pairing I think that they could just fucking get rid of. There's so many things in the beginning of this film they could just do, like... The again, the, the just the mystery thing they could do, but they build a lot of this to show you who Hobbes is and what his character is, so that we see what happens to him later on in the film. So once we leave uh, the apartment, and this is a really crappy apartment for a cop, let me tell you that, especially when there's three people living there. But of course, where it is, and I think this. I don't really don't know where this movie takes place. Honestly, it could take place in like. Boston, Philadelphia, maybe New York on the outside. It's not it can't really be New York because it's way too fucking like clean. Maybe it's in the Boston area. I, I have a feeling that it's around there, but he does live in an older style, like flat apartment, whatever it is. Uh and on a cop salary you would think that he maybe you'd be able to afford something a little bit better than what it is, especially if he's a detective. Anyway, so Going from his shitty apartment, we go over to another place, and we see that the guy, Charlie, he has killed somebody and left them inside of a tub. He does something really weird where he puts a shit ton of sugar on fucking cornflakes. Like, dude, you know, that's gonna kill you more than anything else. Like, are you a fucking child? I remember when I was a kid, it was always four fucking tablespoons of sugar on top of my Rice Krispie treats. Or, you know what, Mom? Maybe you should just bought me frosted fucking flakes instead so that way I didn't have to put so much fucking sugar on top of them. I could have just had them. They were a part of a nutritious breakfast after all, okay? As long as I had some fucking orange juice and a piece of toast and maybe a piece of fruit, then I could eat those frosted fucking flakes Instead of those dry, cardboard-ass-tasting cornflakes, I could have just had something nice along with the rest of my meal. But instead, you went with those damn cornflakes. Or, as I might have said before, Rice Krispies. But it was the same thing. If you got the cornflakes or got the Rice Krispies, you always put a little extra sugar on it. Because, hey, that's what made them taste good at the time as a kid but this dude's a grown man i'm totally cool right now with my multi-grain cheerios yes that's right that makes me super old i wish they could be honey nut cheerios but they have to be as plain as day but hey that's for me kicks are great too if you hate kicks screw you buddy but as a kid you might not love like that stuff but we're going way off topic here And what I'm trying to say is that Charlie's a fucking kid by putting a ton of sugar in his bowl where he should just be eating them fucking plain as they are. 
And that's when we go back and we see that Hobbs is walking towards the police station for his shift, and we have another little monologue from him. Cop sees even the most casual thing. It registers. Often you don't remember till later on, but then you look back and you realize you knew. What you don't see by listening to the audio here is that Charlie is actually following him at this point. He goes to his desk and he starts talking with and checking in with everybody. And of course he gets a phone call from who else but Charlie. Detective Hobbs. Hey pal, you got a pen? Four five four one South Center, apartment two. Who's there? A clue. Lou Magoo. Couldn't sleep last night, Jones. Who can? Remember I used to get these calls two or three o'clock in the morning from Reese? Oh, he loved you, Hobbs. Truly did. Somebody called me last night. Imagine that. Denise. Yeah. In a call with a 4541 South Stender apartment two. Uh, make sure we gain entry, huh? Got a body? Nah, it's probably just some knucklehead saw me on TV trying to impress his girl. How'd I look, by the way, last night? Fabulous. You saw that? Yeah. On four different channels. Of course, there's a body in the goddamn apartment because we just saw that it happened to be there. And so Jonesy and Hobbs, they go over to the apartment after the body is found. And once inside, they see that everything is kind of set up really weird within the apartment, kind of to mimic how Reese would kill people before he was executed. They also find on the wall that there's a riddle that Reese had told Hobbs right before he died. Very tidy. The DOA's been dead a while, so what the hell is this, huh? Killer slept over and then uh, had a nice neat breakfast. Looks like... Check this out. Shit. What? It's a riddle. Reese in his cell before he died, he asked me why is there a space between lines and Spokowski. Yeah? So they go back over the precinct after they clean everything up. And honestly, I really wouldn't want Jonesy's job. I understand that he's a detective, but he's the one that's got to take all the photographs of everything that went down. Especially the guy that's in the tub. And and the weird thing that they find out is that the guy in the tub has been poisoned. And it's the same poison that Reese would use before. So that throws up a bunch of flags. They go back over to the precinct and they start talking about kind of what's going on. And I actually figured out at this point that they're in Philadelphia, okay? So before you write to me and you say anything, it's fucking Philly that this all takes place in. So, so the housing situation really makes sense since it's in Philadelphia. Back at the precinct, they begin trying to... Well, Hobbs tries to begin piecing everything together because he's kind of like, well... I don't know why somebody would do something like this. Do we really have a copycat killer on our hands? And so he decides to ask somebody the riddle that Reese left for him before and that he saw on the wall of the apartment over there with Jonesy. Yeah? You like uh, riddles, you know, uh, puzzles and shit, brain teasers? Sure, as long as I'm doing the teasing. Why is there space between Lyons and Spakowski? What does that even mean, man? Come on. Where's well, Spokowski, my rookie year? South Precinct. Come again? 
No, you're Spukowski. This guy's a cop. You talking, Luke? Guy's a fucking asshole. He's a King Kong of assholes. A fucking legend. His name's up on a wall. Are you fucking eating a turkey leg there, Gandolfini? Like, that thing's fucking huge. It seriously looks like he went to a renaissance fair and just grabbed a turkey leg from a car, like one of those random carts that they have there, and then just started chomping on it when he got there. Like, who orders that for fucking lunch? Like, they just thought that, hey, he's got to eat. He's kind of an asshole. What would an asshole eat during this scene that would make a lot of noise and have him go while he's fucking talking? Oh, I get it. A big fucking turkey leg. Just fucking eat the turkey. And so, (laughs) once he stares at him for eating his turkey leg, Hobbs goes downstairs and sees that there's like a Hall of Fame type of wall, and there is one name that's missing in between two cops. And that's the answer to the riddle. So what he does is he goes on America Online... AOL? Really? Like, I gotta remember when this movie took case, okay? This was way before the giant Google empire of search engines. Yeah, I think this was even before Yahoo was really getting big, as well as all those other ones, you know, Ask Jeeves and, uh, well, it's Ask.com, I believe it used to be. Remember when you watched TV and you'd see those, like, search engine commercials that were always out there? Yahoo was trying to be the big wigan because everybody used AOL to fucking log into the internet. I mean, like, everyone. You rarely had people. Yeah, okay, I understand. Earthlink's a fucking thing, but Earthlink wasn't that big of a fucking thing. And there were a lot of things, like, on campus when you had a T1 connection and you didn't have to worry about using fucking AOL. Man, that'd be sweet to have again. Getting so fucking sick of all these fucking cable internet providers and their shitty service. I wish I could just fucking put a T1 line in here. Anyway, so he starts AOLing. Is that even a verb? Well, he starts searching with it, and oh my god, his mouse has a middle fucking button. Like, that's the click button. Like, what what the hell? I don't even remember those fucking types of mouses. Like, I remember when mouses finally got a fucking wheel so that you can scroll up and down on the damn page, but middle button? What? Which fucking computer is he using? I can't tell if he's using an old fucking Mac or he's using some random PC, but what mouse has three buttons on it? I fucking blows my mind. This is only 98. This is this is almost 20 years ago though. God, it's almost 20 years ago. Oh man. Nothing like a movie to make you feel really old. Anyway, uh, so, 20 years, Jesus fucking Christ, now I'm not gonna let that fucking go the rest of the time I'm thinking about this movie. So he uses his weird fucking mouse to go searching on AOL, good lord, to say that sentence again just makes me feel, again, really fucking old. Uh, but he ends up finding out the information that he needs and the answer to his riddle. Robert Milan, that's right. Copy year 1965, eight months later. Goes up to a cabin in the middle of nowhere, dies, cleaning his guts. So it was either two things. He was dirty, or it was a woman. What? Uh, I met him once, Milano. He had a poker up his ass, but otherwise he was a good cop. But what I want to know... I know what you want. I can't help you. Can't help me? Look, do all of us a favor, okay? Whatever you find out, keep it to yourself. So Hobbs goes back over to his desk past this point, 
and he's a little kind of distraught over what his boss Stan is kind of telling him. Like, I can't really talk about anything, and maybe you should just either drop it or keep whatever you find to yourself, because something that happened doesn't quite sit well with him or maybe with the district or the fact that a cop ended up killing himself randomly in the woods somewhere is not the best thing that looks upon them. When he gets back over to his desk, Jonesy lets him know that, hey, the video has arrived from the documentary and maybe they should look at it. They also think that, hey, you know, the poison was very similar to the one that Reese used, so maybe a cop is actually in on this stuff. Whoever did Muscovich knew the poison that Reese used. He quotes Reese. He could be a cop. Yeah, he could be, huh? Huh, Lou? Could be a cop, huh? What? Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Make sure Hops gets a copy of this. You watching, Johnny Boy? Hope you're paying close attention. Every gesture! Every word! Wait a second. Check some out. The um, language you were speaking later, that's Dutch. That's what he said. What's he speaking now? Is that Dutch? If not? Yeah. This is uh, mumbo jumbo gibberish. Oh, you sure on that? So he decides that he's going to investigate the whole Robert Malone thing a little further and finds out that he still has a daughter that's alive. He decides to stalk the daughter and go over to her place. And he kind of pushes his way in And, and when he meets Greta, his daughter. Uh, it's weird. Like, he's just kind of like, hey, I'm here to talk about your dead dad like why he killed himself do you know why and this has been quite some time from what i understand it's been 30 years since that whole thing first went down and to just go up to somebody be like hey i'm a cop i'm investigating your dad like maybe he was trying to pin the murders on him or something like that it's a weird type of conversation that goes on, but ultimately, you know, he does ask her, hey, can I contact you if I need to have more information? She says no, and it's pretty savage when she does it, but she does ask him, hey, do you believe in God? Maybe you should start believing in him more than you actually do, which gives you kind of a hint of what's going on within the film. It's a very long scene. I mean, it's got some very good bits of dialogue in it, but I just didn't feel like it was worth it putting it in here because it doesn't really add a whole lot to the rest of the film. Again, this is part of the first half of the movie. And honestly, in the film, we're at 20-something minutes into the film. And right now, we're at 40-something minutes into the podcast. So to break down a lot of that dialogue again, which is good to hear but it's not super important to the whole plot it's more or less to kind of lead you on to what happened before this whole incident with Denzel and Reese kind of went down considering that was like 30 years ago or something like that it's very odd to kind of talk about it at such length when we'll talk about it again at a later part in the film he goes back over to the precinct and then there's this really weird conversation about pizza that of course it's the fat guy that's got to fucking deliver the lines for this scene 
Lee Reese's tape on the phone to a linguist guy. He's coming down. Yeah? Freeland. Said it sounded Mid-Eastern. Mm-hmm. Anything on Moscovich? Only the pizza. Now we're hitting your area of expertise, huh, Jonesy? Damn, pizza is a staff of life. Without pizza and other fine Italian foods, there would be no happiness, okay? There was one slice left. Garlic, linguisa, and pineapple. Plus, there was nothing in Muscovich's stomach, so it was the killer's eats. Hell of a clue. You better uh, write that one up for the journal. I will, Lou. And I will laud you copiously. Pizza is fucking life, okay? That is like the nectar of the fucking gods. And goddammit, Gandolfini, you need to understand that. And of course, you fucking making fun of him again, and you're not the most felt guy, and you're about to become one of the fattest guys in fucking Hollywood. God rest your soul, of course. But (laughs) for you to discount pizza after it was just recently National Pizza Day, goddammit, you can't fucking do that. So they figure out that the language is some sort of like ancient Aramaic and that it makes no goddamn sense to them. And it's not mumbo jumbo, Hobbes. It's actually something that's very important to you and it's very important that you understand what the fuck is going on. Also before this, we see that while Hobbes is walking around, Charles was once again following him. And this time, Hobbes actually kind of noticed the guy that was there. We also see that, uh, I guess there's a transference of whatever it is, because we go into a scene where Charlie, he's there in his own apartment, and he's calling, he's like, wait, I don't understand, when do I work? Everything's really hazy. And then some other guy that was on the street with him breaks into the apartment and kills poor Charlie off, after he learns that he told the people above him to take this job and fucking shove it up your ass. Back at the precinct, we see that Jonesy and Hobbs, they've talked with the language and they've learned more about what the language actually is. And of course, there's also some other stuff that Hobbs has been studying about Reese that he finds really, really odd. Oh my God. Ooh, wee wee. Wow. Syrian Aramaic. Mm. I got something else too. I'm looking up this uh, clipping of Reese, high school baseball team. He bats right. He throws right. <sighs> what are you saying, Hobbs? Reese pulled up some of the sickest shit on record. He's speaking a language 2,000 years old, and you're worried because he's ambidextrous. Oh, yeah. I see. Worried about everything, Joe. Hobbs, call on line one. Thank you, Bill. You Detective Hobbs. Hey, pal. You want to check these out? You another clue? 1339 South Grove. Nine. Jonesy, that pizza place with the number 17? Yeah. That close to Grove? I think so. So they head over to Charlie's apartment and they find that he's been killed. And he's left in the same position with the same crap written on his chest that we don't know exactly what it is. Uh, but he's been killed in the same way that all the other victims of Reese. The difference here is, is that he has uh, like a kill count of two, where the guy before had like a kill count of 18, or I guess they're random numbers. I'm not exactly sure what they are, though they talk about it later on in the film. Of course, Hobbs also comes to the realization that he's seen this guy before, and it's scary when you have deja vu just like this. You know what's scary? Going home last night, this guy's walking past me, he's going the other way. He looks me right in the eye, I mean right in the eye, you know, to kind of look like like he knows you, you know what I mean? 
same guy that's in the bathtub. You're stiff. You shit me. I shit you not. Same guy. Oh, Ain't smart enough to figure what's going down. Me either. I'm under the sink. Same poison. Same poison. Gonna get that down in the lab. Sure. What else you got? Okay, the number on his chest. Last Thursday it's 18, now it's 2. Well, everything's under a Charles Olam. Well, it looks like that's an alias, so uh, we're running this prince. So it's weird that all of a sudden he sees this guy, then this guy ends up dead, and he let everybody know that he had seen this guy before. The same exact poison that was used to kill the previous guy also killed this guy, and it's kind of starting to freak him out if there is some type of like copycat killer that's going around, or could it be something different? He decides to go over and the next day go out into the country there's a really weird scene where you see him playing basketball with sam uh and his like brothers off on the side and he tells him when he needs to go that hey sam you know or art his brother take over and sam's like dad sucks and he's like don't you dare say that about your dad he might suck but you need to fucking respect him and it's just really an odd scene and i'm not sure where it needs to be placed other than he's trying to also be the father figure maybe this brother can't be because his brother is intellectually slow and he's trying to get his kid to understand that it's very weird that sam happens to be art's kid like the whole thing that when they said in the beginning well maybe if she liked me more she would have stayed and he doesn't have kids but art who's intellectually slower than his brother happens to actually have a kid and he acts more like the father than art does and the mother for sam is nowhere in the picture and is never fucking talked about so it's not weird that he has the kid that's not what i'm trying to say and don't fucking get to fucking conclusions on that thing what i'm saying is in a normal film even if you'd have this guy be kind of intellectually uh superior to his brother then you would expect that that guy is the one that has the kid, right? They would set that up. This is my son. Watch, let your uncle take care of you. Or maybe more takes care of his uncle. I, I don't know. It's just really weird. This seems really out of place here. But it's something that happens within the film. And maybe it leads up to the whole thing with, like, you got to respect your dad and something else that happens in a little while. So he decides to take uh, his car and go out into the country and go visit the house that Greta's father killed himself in. And so there's a little bit of a monologue that he has with himself while he's in this cabin, searching for any type of clues or anything that would lead him to learn more about why Robert did what he did. There are moments which mark your life. Moments when you realize nothing will ever be the same. And time is divided into two parts. Before this and after this. Sometimes you can feel such a moment coming. That's the test. Or so I tell myself. I tell myself that at times like that, strong people keep moving forward anyway. No matter what they're going to find. So I'm not sure if this is him talking to himself or it's him still talking to the listener from the beginning of the movie or the viewer in case if you're actually watching the movie. It's weird. That's why I say these monologue choices are weird 
they make some sense towards the end of it, but I can never tell which one is talking where. Like, he's just kind of going over the, like, maybe this is him telling you a little more about his, like, cop experiences or something, or his cop instincts, or it's really just him talking to himself and being like, yeah, I'm being a good detective, and this is the way that you do it, and sometimes these are the moments that make or break your life, like, make or break your career, and this is one of them. I don't know, but he searches the house, and it's very weird because he knows exactly where to look. Like, it's one of those situations where you expect it to be, like, he's looking and looking everywhere, but he goes into the basement, he figures out, how to, one, how to get down there, and two, when he does, he, like, flashes this flashlight in the right direction. Like, he's got some weird sort of spidey sense where, hey, these books that you need to look at, they're up here, and he... It doesn't even try to make it like it's an accident or anything like that. Like, he's just looking around. He purposely goes around like a corner and then turns around, looks up. Oh, I've got to look up there. And there's the fucking books. And then there's a decent jump scare that happens at this point where the ceiling seems like it's going to collapse for a second. And then it doesn't. Uh, It got me even when being at home. So I'd say that's a pretty good one for what it is. So he looks over to the wall and he noticed that the paint looks very weird and i don't know how again he's got some weird fucking like detective sense or some fucking bullshit like that because he figures out that hey there is something weird with the wall and maybe i should take some of this turpentine that randomly is still good even though some guy killed himself after 30 years ago and they really haven't maintained anything about this cabin like you own this property and you're gonna let it look this shitty like is that what you're really going to do I don't fucking get it. I mean, I understand somebody killed themselves there, somebody very dear to you, but at the same time, wouldn't you want to, like, clean it up and fucking sell it or something like that? But no, we're just going to keep it, and we're just going to leave it in fucking shambles the entire time, and we're going to leave everything we had there, and hey, guess what? This turpentine, it's not going to have, like, eaten through the the metal thing that is housing it the jug you know those old school like metal jugs that you used to get for those types of things where they're made with better stuff like better linings and shit like that now and that's probably also fucking full lead so you know breathing anything around it's gonna fucking kill you at that point but it still works perfectly fine it gets rid of the paint and on the wall there's something that's written it says azazel uh but they call it azazel I don't know how the second one is the Zay. Uh, it's A-Z-A-Z-E-L. Azazel. That's what I see it as. But they say it as Azazel. Or whatever the fuck they decide to say it as. I, whatever. Azazel is probably the way that I'm going to say it for the rest of the fucking time we talk about it. So after seeing what was written on the wall there, he decides he needs to go and talk to Greta and figure out exactly what the fuck Azazel or Azazel is. Hello. Hello. I went to your family's place up in the mountains. Oh, beautiful, isn't it? Yes, it is. Very, uh, let me get that for you. Trees in the water. Absolutely beautiful. What does Azazel mean? Your father, he wrote it in the basement on the wall, then he, he painted over it. Now, my dictionary uh, says that it's the uh, evil spirit of the wilderness, whatever that means, huh? And then one of the books your father had up there talks about demons and how they move by touch. I mean, what is that? Walk away, Mr. Hobbs. Say again? If you enjoy your life, if there's even one human being you care about, don't take this case. (laughs) Uh, It's out of my hands, Miss Milano. I mean, it's my job. 
Bye, Mr. Hobbs. So he leaves her and he decides to go back over to the precinct. When he's back over there, we meet Jonesy again. And Jonesy has gotten the translation from the linguist that he talked to earlier. And honestly, it's not the best news for Hobbs over here. Because it's honestly a big threat. Translation from the Aramaic. I can't utter you by touch. But even when I can get inside you after I'm spirit, I won't. I'll fuck you up and down, left and right. That's in the Bible. If that doesn't work, I have other ways. I need a translation of the translation. We see on the outside now that there's basically, I guess, this guy, Azazel, or Zazel, or what the fuck is it, this demon that is now coming towards the precinct. And we see him slowly change bodies. And, and this is kind of the way that I want to talk about that first scene that we looked at because now we know a little more about exactly how everything works and that he's some type of demon angel where the fuck he is spirit that can transfer through touch but within what uh, jonesy said over here jonesy says that the translation was i can't get through to touch but i can still take you over like there's a way that he can do it outside of that So we don't know exactly the full rules, but we know at this time, if we understood fucking Aramaic at the beginning of the movie, that the reason that we saw the scene with everybody bumping into each other is because we saw the transfer of the spirit. Yes, we've kind of gotten it by now, but it was actually a pretty good setup for us to understand exactly what's happening on later in the film. But why couldn't we learn that before we got to that point? Why couldn't we have just gotten to the point where all of a sudden Charlie's the one that's killed somebody and then now he's no longer there? We see that Charlie now has died and then, you know, there's still the killer at large. Like, we could have totally thought that everything was just being set up, but instead we're constantly being shown that the body is changing through the touch, but we aren't shown or told that that's exactly how it happens really until now like this is where we're kind of more solidified though we kind of got that from some of the interaction with greta but it's not really set in stone because hobbs doesn't truly believe in everything yet right he has an idea he still believes it's fucking bullshit he wants to understand who this angel or person or thing is but he doesn't quite he hasn't been like drawn into everything within this world at this point in the film and that now sets up perfectly for this next section right that's why i say get rid of that in the beginning it saves you quite a bit of time and there's a lot of things that we could have shortened down and we're getting towards the middle part of the film and Here, during this scene where Gandolfini's character comes up and starts asking odd questions, and we saw after we've been told about the touch thing that he started changing and transferring bodies, and to one point that a cat touches somebody, and you have to wonder, well, what does that fucking mean? Uh, It's like... It's weird that we get this scene now when Hobbes is more trying to believe what's going on. So, without further ado, hey, why don't you do some body changing here, Azazel, or whatever the fuck your name is? So, Hobbes, you tell me something. Shoot. The other day you were down in the basement uh, reading an old file. Yeah, what about it? Well, it looked like there was some kind of map in there. I was wondering, you go somewhere? Yeah, one of the country. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's great to get out of town. Huh? Lovely, fresh air. You know? Yeah. 
I used to do that, go up to a house in the mountains and sit by the water. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, where'd you go? Why you asked them? Come here. Come here. Come on, come here. Time is on my side. Yes, it is. Time is on my side. Yes, it is. Blue. What? You always saying that you wanna be free, but I'm running out. Mike. And so he chases after him and whatever, you know, Azazel, he disappears kind of into the crowd because he begins constantly changing between different people. Uh, We see him talk to him through different people that he's touched, saying that, you know, you're not going to be able to stop him. Uh, And it's a good scene. And I think that this should have been the scene that we saw earlier in the film. Instead of seeing that, this is when we should have had it. This is the perfect opportunity because we've learned a little more about the creature and what exactly he does and what that supernatural power is. But instead, we get the beginning one. And if you've never seen any part of this film or in the trailer or don't really know you kind of get confused, like, why the fuck are we watching this? This is completely fucking pointless. It makes sense now because it's giving us a little clue of what's going on with this entity, uh, but we really don't need it. I feel like this is a much stronger version of that scene, and this is the second time we get it, especially since he taunts and mocks Hobbs at the same time. And he kind of does it again later on, and it's well done. Now, this is when the movie, in my opinion, it starts changing gears as we're leading towards a conclusion. That first hour that we've just gone through, all of a sudden, has this has a lot more meat that's not just dialogue to it it has a lot of revelation we learn more about the actual guy rather than focusing really i feel like on the character of hobbs and setting up to be a guy that's kind of being set up just like the father of greta in fact there's a scene between greta and hobbs he goes and finds her again where he realizes that the same thing that was done to her father is being done to him what are you doing just back then what are you talking about? Back then, with the singing, you were singing. Well, I wasn't singing. Yeah, were, Lawrence was and singing Michael. and Mike was singing. Some 60s thing. Here you go. I wasn't singing it. I hated the fucking 60s. I wasn't singing. I appreciate your situation, okay? I really do. Father, mother, they're dead, their lives are ruined, your life is ruined. I'm very sorry about that. But I gotta know what's going on, okay? Because if this thing is what it seems to be, if this thing is what the the book says that it is, then... Is this for real? I mean, do you, 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 you believe this stuff? I believe more is hidden than is seen. Well, I believe what I see, and I'm still trying to get my mind around what I just saw, okay? Something threatened me and this reese he threatened me in aramaic i mean we're going backwards what else did reese say hey i'm asking the questions here miss milano you answer the question 
you answer the questions that I ask, okay? Because if I don't know what's going on... We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to know. We're not supposed to see. It's like the mafia. They don't even exist. Okay, okay. That's good. That's a start. They don't even exist. So where are they from? Who the hell are they? Mr. Hobbs, there are certain phenomena which can only be explained if there is a god. And if there are angels, and there are, they exist. Some of these angels were cast down, and a few of the fallen were punished by being deprived of form. They can only survive in the bodies of others. It's inside of us, inside of human beings. Their vengeance is played out. That's it. <laughs> come on, get out of here. I mean, come on, what? I mean, it's Milano, I'm, I'm just a cop, okay? I'm a detective. My work is based upon evidence, facts. Mine too, mine too. And aren't your facts here rather resistant to normal interpretation? So you're saying that Edgar Reese is actually... At the time you knew him, he was not himself. He was Azazel. Yes, Azazel. Sadistic, left-handed, likes to sing. Reese. Yes. So why does he focus in on me? What don't you do? Don't got his attention. So he tried to get inside you. Remember, he shook your hand. That didn't work. So now he's going to try and find some other way. Like he did with your father. So there's the connection between the two of them. She also goes on to talk about she's with a group of people that are overly religious and are like preparing for this time. Like when they can fight against demons for the will of God. It's really odd. It's kind of just thrown in there. And it's something that sets up something a little later, but they never really go into it. Like I don't really feel like getting into that part of Greta's life is really that important. Like it's cool that she kind of like atoned herself to the more spiritual side of things because of what happened with her father and what her father's research were. She could have just kind of gone that route, but instead she's like, yeah, I'm part of a group that we try to do these things and we're trying to be ready for the time. And it kind of fails her when Azazel, he actually goes after her. Sorry, I've just got to tap you on the shoulder. You're a friend of John Hobbs, aren't you? Huh? I'm Jay Reynolds. Oh. You know. Ooh. How lovely. You're not just Hobbs' chippy. Have we met? You seem vaguely familiar. Mm. Come on. Tell me. I'm about to find out anyway. Foreplay. This actually starts a really interesting and at the same time fucking ridiculous chase scene when you watch this. Because he's got her cornered. She does touch him. So it shows that even though, well, he doesn't really touch her. She kind of pushes against him. But I don't know exactly how that works. Does it have to be him? Uh, But he may not be able to enter her as well. Because they do touch, right? And she doesn't change into Azazel. She stays herself. And she manages to run away. And he gets blocked by something, and then he starts just randomly touching people. And it's like a long of people putting their hands on other people's shoulders. And I think it's really interesting, kind of cool for a chase scene, because it means that like he doesn't have to like run after her and do all these crazy stunts and everything. It's just a line of people like like holding hands across America or something like that, where they're just touching. And it's 
like I said, it's neat at the same time. It's fucking ridiculous because it looks bad at the same time. Like I really like the concept, and he she gets into a cab and she tells the cabbie to run one. He's like, "What?" She's like, "Somebody's chasing me." Would and then it's not until the, the fucking demon smashes open the window that he's even like, "Oh, it's time for us to fucking leave," and that's when the cabbie leaves. So there's a heartfelt conversation right after this between Hobbs and Greta, where Greta she believes that she was ready for it, but then she found out that she's just not ready to do, or it's not just her time to really handle this type of situation and of course Hobbes is kind of like well do we all know when our time is and she's like I'm not sure if everybody's going to be ready when their time is called and so I don't know if it's a mixture of the time being the time that they're going to be killed or the time being that this is the time where they need to actually have that come and call to action I kind of leave it up to the second one because she's talking about how she's trained for this all her life and then all of a sudden now she's unable to do it so we go back over to the precinct, and Stan, Hobbs's boss, of course played by Donald Sutherland, if I haven't explained that before, but he pulls him aside and he lets him know that, hey, you are actually a suspect in this case. You want to see me, Lieutenant? Yeah. How you doing? Fine. The murder's not getting you wound up. You can bag the chocolates, Lieutenant. You ain't got to talk to me sideways. What's, what's up? Where were you when Muscovitz and Nunes were killed? Where was I? What, am I a suspect? Sit down. Not to me, you're not. But... Lieutenant, you know, hey, was it the phone records again? I mean, come on, what do they think I did? They think I committed the murders and I called my own house and I ran home and answered my own phone? I mean, no, it's something else. Your prince. My prince? On what? On that fucking little coin of yours. Where? Noon's place. <laughs> oh, shit. It's a frame of you. Is it? Yeah, I mean, anybody could have got those coins. They could have got them, uh... When I'm at the store shopping or something, they could have taken them off my desk, Lieutenant. We always said it could be a cop. Yeah, we did always say that. I'm not stupid, you know. I know you know more than you're saying. So tell me. You don't really want to know, Lieutenant. I mean, you'd have to be there. I was there, and I don't even want to know. Try me. So he tries to tell him a little more of what happened with Robert. Greta's father and of course he just kind of blows him off and he's like you know I can't believe in this shit and I I wouldn't tell him that either I would just tell him something else be like hey you know what I've done some more investigating and I feel like it's a copycat cult and I really need more time to get into it and even when he's asked like he's like I'm a suspect well are you wouldn't you just straight up deny that shit instead of acting like he did am I a suspect Uh, there's no way that I could be... Uh, I mean, the, I'm not a suspect. That looks really, really fucking suspicious. Especially since everything is surrounding what you're doing. I mean, you just easily come out and be like, Hey, it looks like somebody's just trying to set me up. You know, I did this story. I've been reading I understand you don't want to listen to about this guy. But he was experiencing the same stuff. Good cop. All of a sudden, he started to get planned for it. So it could be somebody that's been around since he killed himself. 
And leave it at that. Don't go into demons and angels and where the fuck you want to talk about. But of course they're not going to understand what the hell is going on. Because, you know what? I wouldn't believe it either if you came up to me and you told me about it. So he decides that he needs to go home for the day. And that's where he runs into his nephew who's out on the street. Climbed up in a tree. And everything seems to be normal. He goes back into the house and he looks for his brother. And when he finally does find him, something with him is very wrong. Which any eye? I fell. You fell. I, I fell. What's something? Art right, people don't fall down and get a black eye. No. No. Oh. Um. All right. All right. All right. It's okay. It's okay. Just look. What happened? Sammy hit me. What? It was an accident, though. He didn't. He didn't mean to, though. It, we didn't mean to. We, we. It was an accident. Johnny, it was an accident. John! John! Sam? Where's Toby? Outside, I guess. Okay, go back in the house. So he runs after wherever Toby is because he realizes at one point that Sam was actually being possessed by Azazel. And he's the one that used Sam's body to beat up his dad. Or his dad just needs some nerf stairs as well as some nerf uh, fucking door handles or whatever he needs around his house because he's so goddamn clumsy. So going outside, he runs into the boy who has the paperwork that he's been looking for. And he's looking through it and learning more about his uh, Hobbs's life. He runs away and Hobbs gives chase and of course he transfers body into one guy who reaches into a car and grabs a gun pointing it directly at Hobbs and Hobbs has no choice but to put the poor man down. What's the matter pal? You afraid to fight me? Come on Hobbs, come on out. Come on Hobbs, come on. Put your gun down. I knew you'd come out. Put the gun on the ground! I know you, Hobbs. Set the gun down, sir! Inna, yadahana, the menu, at. Put the gun down! So what's really weird about this situation is, one, how did he know that that guy had a gun readily accessible to him? And two, how would he know that that guy would be around at this location? Like, I get it. It's kind of weird at this moment, and they explain it within the next scene. Uh, the other thing is, is if you weren't paying attention, he can't actually touch Hobbs to go into him. It's not quite explained in the right way right now, and we'll learn more about that later. But within the scene when they were learning about the languages, he learned that, hey, uh, he actually you know, is unable to touch him and enter him for some reason. So at the end of this, we get the weird... Uh, demon cam thing going up into the air to where he goes into somebody else's body he sees that person right away chases after her and that's when she kind of approaches him uh to tell him that hey why do i need to stop this because we're still having fun yes it is time is on my side hey pal Wake up, Hobbs. I'm not that easy to kill. When my host dies and I move his spirit, no man can resist me. What are you going to do, arrest me? What are you going to tell Stanton? I'd love to hear that one. It's me you want, isn't it? 
Why'd you just kill me, huh? But I'm still having fun. Aren't you still having fun? I really do like how they use all these, like, little actors to do the parts of Azazel when he's entered his body. Like, they all have the same type of cadence and same type of attitude, and it's really well done that they're all able to kind of stay within the same realm and be the same type of character. I think that that's one of the highlights of this fucking movie in general, is just how well that character's traits goes from body to body to body to body, without being the same character or being a voiceover or anything like that. Whenever he goes into somebody's body, that actor is Azazel, and then when they're out of it, it's a totally different actor. Even when he took over Sam for just a little bit, you see him up in the tree and you you don't really realize it, but the kid kind of acts in the same way. His friend Toby, exactly the same thing. When he's inside the body and he's talking to Hobbs, he acts the same exact way. Although being the body of a kid and the voice of a kid it's still the same like it doesn't seem it seems like it's almost flawless yes there's some differences between it but in general it seems like it's the same throughout and it's pretty fucking awesome so of course if he wants to protect himself we all know what good cops do uh if they want to make sure that they're not the ones that get pinned for the killing of somebody that you know they had to shoot in the line of duty and that's just sprinkle some crack on them so he forgets to do that and that of course causes some rifts in between stanton and him where stanton actually tells him in this case you actually are the killer what am i gonna say what am i gonna do when we know that he fired first Witness is cooperating. His gun was filled with blanks, okay? And he got the gun out of a stolen car. Yeah, How about that set one? Up, Lieutenant. A setup? That's right, a setup. He set it up for you to kill him? Art! Right. He's suicide. Excuse oh. me, Art. What the hell are you doing out here, huh? You take Sam home, you lock every door, every window in the apartment. You don't let anybody in. Absolutely nobody. Can you do that? Can you remember that? Yeah. All right, do it. Johnny? Yeah. Are you mad at me or something? No, I never. Just do what I told you. Wait to see the mighty fall. You know what I mean? Now it's letters. Fuck you, dude. Look, Lieutenant, I told you it's a cult. Some weird psycho, Aramaic, Satanist reincarnation cult. Got APO written on his chest. It's, uh, trying to send some kind of message. Sending a message. Hobbs. This time, you are the killer. Yeah, sort of. No fucking sort of. No breaks, no benefit of the doubt. We're going back to the precinct. Now. So he goes back over the precinct with both Jonesy and Stanton. And Stanton pulls him into his room and basically tells him, Hey, you're going to have to give up your gun. One, for evidence. Two, because you're going to be kind of taking some time off. Because you are a suspect and you're the one that killed this person in this case. Uh, There's a really good scene in between Jonesy and uh, Hobbs that I'm going to play you right here. Where they talk about what the point of life is. Uh, And I just really enjoyed the the interactions between Goodman and Denzel in this scene. But when we look back at this other one, we see Jonesy is still kind of sticking up for Hobbs in this situation. And even he's saying that, hey man, it's some sort of cult. There's something else that's going on. And even though 
there isn't the belief from his boss, Stanton, it still seems better at this time. Like, if you'd use that excuse before you did this, like this whole thing when you were going to tell him everything that with Robert and all that crap, if you had just said, Colt, maybe he would have understood this better and that I'm being set up by somebody with inside this cult because they followed everything that I was doing rather than fucking talk about your angels and demons and bullshit like that. He kind of fights for the reasons why he should still stay on board, but Stan really doesn't want to hear it. And that's afterwards when we have this like little sit-down between Hobbs and Jonesy. Point of watch. You want a cigarette? Thanks. Point of life is we catch bad guys. Yeah, that's what I used to think. It's not good enough, Jones. Yeah, you can shoot me for talking like this. Hey, it's 2 o'clock in the morning. You can talk any way you want. What are we doing here? You know what I'm saying? Why do we even exist? Us. Maybe it's God, Hobbs. Yeah, it could be. I have a hard time believing that we're part of some huge moral experiment, you know, conducted by a greater being than us. I mean, if there's a greater being than we are, why does he give a shit about us? Five billion of us, we're like ants. I mean, do we care what ants do, you know, from a moral standpoint? Ants? Yeah. Oh. Right, so... Hobbs, I'm following you, but at the same time, I'm losing you. I know, I know. No, I mean, are are you heading someplace here? That's my point, Jonesy. Are we headed someplace? And if we don't figure it out, Maybe if you figure it out, you die. Heart attack, stroke, you figure out what's what, you don't get to hang around anymore. You get promoted. Meanwhile, Dolores, she says we're put here to do one thing. One thing? What's that? Well, it's different. It's uh, different for everybody. Hers is lasagna. Lasagna? And just one thing, not like two or three or... Oh, maybe two. I don't know. It's just her opinion, Hobbs. It's like... When a moment comes, you either do the right thing or wrong. So I really like this. It's not necessarily... I would, like I said before, the interaction between the two. I, I do really like that as well, but I think it's just the idea that they have going on here is that everybody has one purpose in life. Uh, the first point is that, you know, what if that is true, right? You finish your purpose and then all of a sudden that's it. That's the moment that you die, or you find out what exactly the point of life is. And that's the moment that you pass away. Like, everybody has figured out the secret, and then all of a sudden, boom, you're promoted to something that's a higher power, if a higher power actually exists. That's not up for me to say. That's not up for you to decide. That's something that we'll all figure out one day. But... The other thing is that everybody here has a purpose in life. Whether it's a good purpose or it's a bad purpose, you have a reason why you're here. And that's kind of an interesting thing, too. And when you think about it in terms of this film, what exactly is Hobbes' purpose? And we kind of get an idea of what that's going to be. And it's probably something to do with what's going on with Azazel. But what's everybody else's purpose? Or does that point, once they're used, they're just kind of thrown away? Uh, by the rest of the universe at the same time, right? If he doesn't fulfill his purpose, he's been used, he's been killed, uh, 
is that all there is to everything or do you get to go somewhere better after that even if though you fulfilled what you've done so it's a very interesting idea that they kind of interject into the film and i i really enjoy like these moments in the film there's a lot of these little tidbits here and this is probably my favorite one one of the reasons why i included this one in here so he goes back home and he decides that well he puts sam down to sleep and then he goes to bed himself. He wakes up in the morning and he kind of asks Sam, hey, what's going on? And that's when Sam, uh, you know, he asks, he sees that one of the windows looks like it's open. And he asks him, hey, were you, you know, uh, sleeping when I put the, the blanket over on top of his I think you were, but you were tickling my chest. And that's when he pulls down his shirt and sees that there's a Y on his chest. He goes back over to the bedroom to check on his brother Art. And unfortunately, his brother has been killed. And I wasn't very happy with that point. Like, I just felt that's really fucked up that you would kill that character. Was there a reason why, other than to really set up Hobbes to be the the be-all, end-all, like, killer type of person? Like, it would have been interesting, too, at this point. And this never really happens, because we know that he can't be uh, entered into by touch. Uh, that Hobbes himself was actually was the killer. Like, Azazel was coming in at night, and he was going in there to take over his body, and then he would go kill somebody, put him back, and then he wouldn't remember, because nobody remembered anything that was going on. That would have been really interesting. But the fact that he's the super protagonist of the movie that can't be touched by the angel or the demon in one way or another, that... We kind of end up in this situation where Art has to die. And I'm not a, like I said, just not a big fan of them actually doing this. And then the other thing is, is he goes and he picks up the needle that was being used. And why would you touch the goddamn needle? You know your brother's just been killed. Somebody else's prints have to be on that goddamn needle. Because he can't go into you, right? And it might have been his son that was used to do the killing. And that would totally suck too at the same time. But you would not be blamed for any of the killings if you just fucking didn't touch it and didn't stay around. Of course, he decides to go ahead and take his son and go over to Greta's. Not his son, but take Sam, his nephew, who is basically his son, uh, over to Greta's. And it really, really sucks. But before this all kind of goes down, one thing I forgot... And this is something that's very important to the film. See, he talks with Greta, and they explain that he found some stuff out about Azazel, and the fact that he only has so much time after the body has been killed that he has been, uh, you know, possessing, and that there's a certain length that he has to go uh, before he can inhabit somebody else. You got me to kill an innocent man. I know. What do they want, Greta? Just tell me what they want. The demons? They want the fall of civilization, the fall of Babylon, as they put it. The whole thing? Yeah. Well, they're doing a good job, aren't they? You know, after I shot the teacher, Zazel moved to someone else. Are you sure? After death? Positive. After death, yeah, I saw it. Oh, yeah, listen to this. I was looking through one of your father's books, and it says, um, outside, I guess that means outside the body, outside, they can survive for one breath only. 
There's a Hebrew text that says the breath can carry them for 500 cubits. I never knew what it meant. A cubit, that's like a distance or something, right? Yeah, from your elbow to your fingertips. So 500 cubits would be, what, about a sixth of a mile. Yeah, well, you're right then. They, uh, I guess they are limited in certain ways. What are you thinking? So I guess he's got some sort of a plan. And if we break all that down, when he dies and leaves the body, he's got so much time to get into another body. But he's so powerful and so irresistible that anybody will take him. So that means that even though Denzel can resist him, like we saw in the beginning of the film, if he dies, he can go into Denzel's body. And that's something to think about later on in the film. So back to where we were before I had to interrupt us with that clip that was very, very important. So Denzel, he picks up everything and he just kind of leaves his dead brother in the bed, tells his nephew, Sam, that you need to get dressed and we're going to be fucking leaving, and then goes on the run. He figures out that all the letters combined on all the bodies that have been left spell the words apocalypse. When he talks to a random nun on the subway train, fucking convenient, let me tell you about that. She says that it has something to do with the book of Revelation and that it's very significant and important. But we really don't go into any more than that. Like, do you know what apocalypse might mean? Really? Really? You don't know what apocalypse means? It's not just a fucking X-Men character, okay? It's a sign of the end times. That's what they want to do. And that's what we just talked about in the goddamn clip before that. They want the end days. They want to destroy civilization. They want the apocalypse. That's what that means. Like, are you that fucking dense? You've been very smart up to this point, but you don't know what that means. Anyway, so they get off the sub. They're recognized by a random cop. Uh, and he knocks him out to run into the homeless encampment. And that's when he finally sits them down and tells Sam, Yo, your dad's dead. You know what's going on, Sam? The police think that uh, I did some bad things. You are the police. Not anymore. Well, why do they think you did that? Because... Because somebody uh, made it look like I did. I almost saw that on the show. I want to talk to you about something else, too. About your dad. He's not asleep, is he? He's going to go to heaven? Yes. Yes, I do. Anybody deserves to go to heaven is your dad. I think so, too. Okay, the first thing I want to get across here is that kid does not sound oppressed enough that his dad is fucking dead. And honestly, this is the way that you're going to tell him that your kid's dead, like his dad's dead. Like, seriously, do you know what happened? Oh, well, no, okay, well, I'm being framed for murder. Oh, and your dad's dead. What? Like, and the kid's just like, oh, I guessed as much. Really? 
you you the kid like felt like he knew that that was the case and his dad's just fucking like one that just fucking left him there and you wouldn't blame him and you wouldn't think that your uncle actually did it you know you're so ingrained with the fact that your uncle's a cop and that maybe cops can't do any wrong at least your uncle the good cop can't do any wrong and then he's dead and you don't even ask about him when you're leaving like what are we gonna do with dad he's just like look we gotta leave we're gonna play a trick on somebody let's get the hell out of here and he's like oh okay i'll just fucking go because i'm a little kid not can we take dad with us i mean the he seems really indifferent to his father and it was kind of seen in that little vignette when they were playing basketball and he was like you gotta respect your dad and he's like my dad sucks and maybe he truly thinks his dad sucks because hey he doesn't really care that much that he's dead like he's not sad he's not anything really he has no expression on his face when he finds out that his dad is dead it kind of sucks you kill off this character and you would expect that there would be a lot more to it other than with both of them that he's just got to run i can't i get it a little bit with hobbs he doesn't really have the time to like calm down and see that his brother has been you know killed he doesn't really have time to react because the cops were closing in on him i i get it i get it but at least the son there's no tears nothing he's just like it dad's dead okay and, and even the way the delivery of it yo your dad's dead like that's what it feels like i feel he could have just put on some weird random philly accent and told him that his dad was dead i don't have a philly accent okay it's just there you go you that's you get what you get when it comes to this uh so of course he decides that hey i'm gonna take my nephew over to greta's place and then i'm gonna fucking dump him on her because hey guess what he's fucking yours now because i think i have a plan on how to actually stop azazel and you know in my mind while watching this film i automatically think oh well that means he's gonna find some way to fucking kill himself and to make sure that uh well she's his legal guardian till the end of fucking time i think i got my mind around this thing now but let me let me run this by you okay after the host body dies the demon can survive for one breath over 500 cubits right now at the same time azazel says to me when he moves a spirit no man can resist what does that mean somebody that he can't get into by touch he can still get into by spirit because if when he's in spirit form he's fighting for his life he's going to be that much more powerful please tell me what you're going to do whatever i do i have to make sure that you and sam are safe you take him somewhere nobody knows about even me so hobbs goes ahead and leaves the kid with greta and basically doesn't even tell him goodbye he just decides hey i'm fucking leaving and goes to the cabin out in the woods while he's driving up there we get a little monologue about how he's ready for his fight with azazel you're probably wondering what am i doing well this is where things get a little tricky. It's just him and me now. Hobbs versus Azazel. I thought I had him, but he thought he had me too. 
So from here we see Hobbs and he's kind of wandering around the cabin that's up there and he's waiting for everybody to show up. And eventually, that's what happens. You see, he's going through... It doesn't look like he's setting traps. This isn't like a home alone type of situation where he's waiting for everybody. And he's got all these things set up. And instead of, you know, paint cans coming out and flying at somebody, he's got spikes that's going to keep Azazel wherever he is. Because he knows that there's only one way that he's going to be able to stop him. Uh, We... It would be nice if that was a possibility that was going on, like he was trying to outsmart him in some way, because it's kind of what we get in that little monologue before we go on, but there really isn't anything other than time passing. We see that Hobbs steps outside, and he calls out to Azazel because he knows that he's there, but he does get a surprise on who shows up. Come on out. I know you're here. I knew you'd come. You know, you had to ask the man what? Haven't you done enough, huh? Made me kill an innocent man, you... Murdered my brother? Come on out, you son of a bitch! How much more fun can you have, huh? Jesus, Hobbs, what are you talking about? I didn't do any of that. Me, I'm the poor schmo they sent up here to bring you in. So it's you now, huh? It's me. Who'd you expect it to be? Now drop your gun, Hobbs. I know you got one. Or what? shoot me? Where's the fun in that, huh? Fuck you, huh? You're making me do this. Now drop the goddamn gun. Do what he says, Hobbs. All right, so this presents a little bit of a pickle in this situation because we don't know exactly who Azazel is. Is it Jonesy or is it Stan over here? Or Stanton, I guess that you could call him if you want to call by his full name, but we'll keep with Stan. So it's really kind of a weird situation that we've got going on here. As Stanton, he obviously doesn't want to do anything harmful to Hobbs, but he's kind of like being forced to at the same time because Hobbs won't do anything. So, of course, we find out that the little twist here is that it's truly not Stanton that is Azazel, but it just happens to be Jonesy. I'm sorry, Stan. Oh, yeah. Been on the force so many years, you think you've seen it all, but you haven't. <laughs> His life always gives you one more surprise. One more. Sometimes it's a big one. Hey, I'm your partner, man. Go on, you're free, run! Keep thinking, Hobbs. How about that, huh? Jonesy's fucked, he just killed the cop. Jonesy's fucked? You're fucked? One at a time, huh? That's how we do it, one by one. Ali, Ali, Oxen, free. 
Now, I love these last sequence of events that happen here, and a lot of it has to do with John Goodman, because he's been very reserved and very kind of low-key quiet for most of the film, and then all of a sudden here, it's like he gets just to go batshit. Like, he puts on some of the best, and it's again sticking with the continuity of that character of a Vazazel, right? He acts the same no matter which character he's in and who the actor that plays him, and at this point... It is John Goodman that gets to have all the fun. In fact, he gets to have maximum fun. Time's up! See the deal? If I kill you, just the final pathetic chapter in the life of a disgraced hero. Just one more piece of shit, human scum. But, turn it around. If I die, I enter you, put 20 more murders on your tab before you go down. Maybe your nephew, or that, that, that shippy you were talking to. Well, how do you want to do this, huh? I die, you die. What's maximum fun, huh? Can you guess? What maximum fun is? Sure you can. Now that I played you from the outside, maximum fun is I become you. And that's when he gets toppled over by Hobbs. Now, can I also say at this point, let's talk about the soundtrack for a second. Like... This soundtrack kind of made having a didgeridoo on it, like, be exciting. Like, you just, wow, 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 wow. And it's like, you're like, oh my god, this is super intense. And then you sit there for a second, you're like, wait, that's a fucking didgeridoo that's going on in the background there. It's just, why? Why would you decide that that was the piece, the instrument, that specifically, this has to be such an entertaining and exciting scene that we need a fucking didgeridoo to make sure that we keep it intense and super passionate? And and then I'm waiting to have something. What's the next instrument that we're going to do? They're going to have a tuning fork in the next scene. And they're, ding, off the side. Ding, or it's going to be a triangle. That's truly what it's going to be. It's going to be a triangle and some guy sitting back there using that and doing it. So after Hobbs jumps on top of Jonesy, or Azazel, uh, there's a little bit of a struggle, and he tries to kill himself. Hobbs manages to wrestle the gun away and basically injure him to the point that he is dying, but he's not actually going to die. And that prompts, of course, uh, Azazel to tell Hobbs, hey, you know, you really can't kill me. Oh, you got me, Hobbs. You got me good. But I gotta ask you something. You wouldn't let me kill myself, why is that? Because I need more time. Time for what, asshole? Hmm. If I run a cue with that's a long way, Azazel. Jonesy dies too fast. As powerful as you are. I might never get away from you. Oh, he's catching on! What? You think you're gonna win this thing? 
So he goes ahead, grabs the gun, and kind of tosses it off to the side, and then sits down on the porch. Now, one thing I didn't mention to you guys, and I meant this on purpose, was that when he was running away with Sam, he stopped off at a place, and he bought a pack of cigarettes. And even Sam made the distinction that, hey, you never buy cigarettes. You like you quit smoking, right? And he's like, yeah, I did. And this is all part of the big plan that he has coming up. And then when so he goes and he takes out the pack of cigarettes and he pulls one out to light. And that's when Hobbs, well, not Hobbs, but uh, Jonesy, who is possessed by Azazel. And of course, remember, Azazel knows everything about whatever... Uh, Jonesy knows, he realizes too that, hey, you don't smoke anymore. What's this? You don't smoke anymore? That's right, I don't. You know why? Because cigarettes kill. Especially cigarettes laced with poison. Bullshit. Same poison that you used to kill my brother. Fuck you. It's beautiful, isn't it? And it's so sweet. We die together. It's you and me. Okay, that's some harsh language you've got going over there, Jonesy, and maybe you shouldn't use that tone with him. The other thing I don't realize at this point, or not realize, I don't understand. Like, he decides that, hey, I'm going to smoke this poison cigarette, and that's going to slowly kill me off. I mean, this is all a really good plan. You've trapped him. He, There's nothing out here that you think that he could get into, you know, and possess. And so, the whole thing that's going on here... You, you've had the perfect, but why decide that, hey, even give him a fucking chance to get away, to take your body and possibly start running with it, or, you know, just get away, just fucking first bust a cap in, you know, Jonesy's ass, fucking blow his head out at that point in the film. I'm not saying any other point, I'm saying right at this moment, and then take the same gun and blow your own fucking brains out. You, I know you may not want to go that way, you want to go more... Uh, I don't know, which, I'm about to say sanitary way, but that's not the way to do it. Uh, peaceful way, that's the better way to go. You want to go out a more peaceful way, but at the same time, it's like you want to do the job and make sure that this motherfucker has been killed, right? You are fucking winning this battle right now. You are going to end this demon forever. And what do you do? You decide to smoke a poison lace cigarette. Well, yeah, it's going to do the job, but don't you want to do it much quicker than you're doing right now? So we see the two. They both keel over about the same time, and the spirit of Azazel goes out of Jonesy and goes into Hobbes' body. And he's actually still a little bit alive at this point, at least enough for Azazel to try and run away as far as he can so he can get out of the body when the body dies. And then release himself into something or someone. Of course, he doesn't make it very far before Hobbes' body gives out. 
And that's where we get the end of the film. And I love this ending. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to play it for you first. And then you'll hear the ending theme song, which is also my favorite Rolling Stones song of all time. Uh, And then we'll talk about what exactly happens during this sequence of the end of the film. It is one of my favorite endings in all the films that I have seen, simply because the bad guy, he fucking wins. So, like I said at the start, I was beaten, outsmarted, poisoned by Detective John Hobbs. Can you imagine what it feels like to be alive for thousands of years and realize you're actually going to die? Because some self-righteous cop decided he was going to save the fucking world. Yes, a demon can die. And Hobbs figured out how to beat me at my own game. So what? The war isn't over, I promise you. Not by a long shot. You forgot something, didn't you? At the beginning, I said I was going to tell you about the time I almost died. See you around. Please allow me to introduce myself. during this scene is actually something that I mentioned very flippantly kind of in the middle of this episode. If you remember correctly, I talked about how a cat touched somebody and they seem like, did that, like, did that transfer? I don't think anything happened, but truly he can go into any living being. It doesn't have to be a human. See, we believe the entire time when we finally learned the rules that it had to be a human soul, that it had to be a human body. It doesn't have to be. He can go into anything. He's so powerful that 
anything is irresistible to him. Not just human beings. So when he dies and he's being poisoned and he's slowly fading out and he goes out into the air, before he fades away, a cat shows up. And he's able to take the body of the cat and then walk away. And that's how he wins. I love the ending of this movie. I love the fact that the bad guy finally wins. I remember being in the theater, maybe because I was so young, but it was such a mindfuck for me. It makes sense why they start the way that it does. Because they tell you the story and you think that it's because Denzel, you know, this is the time he almost died... As a cop, this is how he escapes. Like, maybe somebody found him at the last minute. But it's not about the cop. This is not the cop talking in the most of the monologue scenes. It's fucking a gazazel as Denzel Washington. And you can tell when the different types of uh, monologues are happening in between those scenes because of the inflections that Denzel uses. You can tell when it's Azazel, and you can tell when it's actually Hobbs the cop, when he's talking to himself. When it's more to himself or to somebody else, it's Hobbs. But when it seems like he's more talking to the screen, it's Azazel. It's really well done. I really enjoyed the way they did that in this film. It's amazing. Is it the best film in the world? No, it's not. It has a lot of problems. But what its problems really come down to length and what they do at the beginning. There's a couple of different directions I think they could have gone that I would have enjoyed much better. And one would have been him, say, taking over his body to do the murders, and that's how he thinks he got found out. That would have been great. It would have been interesting. But I understand why they went the route the way they did, because they already established, hey, he can't be entered unless he dies. So when he gets killed and shot by the cop, why doesn't he take over Denzel's body right there? Why doesn't he become Hobbs at that point and then just transfer himself out after everything is done? It's because he wants to play with him. And that's cool. I do enjoy that as well. Overall, the film is a very entertaining film in my eyes. Uh, It's one of those times where I picked a film that it doesn't get the best ratings from everybody, but it's a film that I truly do enjoy, and it was hard to get through for the first hour. I'm going to admit that. Like, if everything had been like that, I probably would have dropped it again and been like, oh god, why did I like this film when I was younger? But the second half makes up for the first half almost entirely. From the scenes with John Goodman at the end of the film to the revelations that he has and looking back upon the scenes from the earlier parts in the movie and realizing that there was a purpose to them. Though, again, I still feel like they could have just been cut out and things could have been cut shorter. You could have had a very good film at 90 minutes or even at 100 minutes uh, instead of the 124 minute runtime, with four minutes honestly being the last bit of credits. It's a very good film and I definitely think that it's worth a watch for everybody if you've never seen it before. But I know sometimes you can't find the time or you can't find the movie anywhere. It is available to rent on things like iTunes and Amazon, stuff like that. But do you really want to go that route? I'm sure that you could find it in some way, shape, or form to watch it once again. Just make sure that you watch the 1998 version of the film. Because there is a 2016 Fallen uh, that is nowhere related to this film at all. I just I, I almost started watching that on accident rather than watching this one. So maybe that's another film for this podcast. Who knows? But I really do recommend it. So what do I give this film in terms of the rating scale? 
Well, the gore factor, it's a one out of five. There's the bullet in the head that Donald Sutherland takes, uh, but it looks pretty cheesy and bad. There's really no gore in this movie. It's not a traditional horror movie. Like I said, it's a supernatural thriller. Uh, The crap factor, it's a three out of five. The first hour definitely drags on for a lot of it. And there are some parts where I'm just kind of like, "Eh, you know, do you really need to do that? Uh, Especially with, you know, his brother dying. I know that's a matter of taste but i feel like it drags the film down a little bit and you don't even need to have that character there or you don't need him to be the father of sam you just need him to be somewhere in there maybe that's why it's so easy for him to give up the kid because your dad's dead and you're not biologically mine so here greta now you've got another mouth to feed that you didn't fucking want uh the fun factor in this film it's a three out of five as well the acting is very good the soundtrack is pretty good as well but you have to get used to hearing that fucking rolling stone song over and over again because he constantly sings it it's his favorite fucking song and it's constantly in this movie uh but you get the really cool sympathy for a devil at the end of it so eh, take your poison right which way do you want to go uh, but again, the acting, and not necessarily the acting of Denzel and some of the other characters, but the minor characters that all portray Azazel when he's, they're possessed are all good. They all have little roles that keep the continuity of that character alive every time he's taken over. The only one I would say that really doesn't have anything to do with it is the guy in between Charlie and when he goes to his house and takes over as Sam for a bit. That guy in the middle, the kind of fat guy uh, that was out running, he doesn't talk, so there isn't much that he does. All he is is a little menacing when Charlie comes to the door and he gets his ass kicked, and then he dies. That's it. There's not much else to know about that character, um, and you don't really hear anything from him. But from the guy that corners Greta to... Uh, you know, even Sam in his little small role is that, to the guy, the kid that plays Toby, to the guy that gets shot, that's the teacher. It's all good, and they're all continually the same type of character and the same type of cadence. It's it's very good. I, I really enjoy it. And Denzel's pretty good. He's a little cheesy at times in this movie, and sometimes it feels like he phones in. But even when he changes over, it's entertaining. So... Yeah, I definitely overall I'm going to give this three out of five uh, poison lace smokes. Uh, it's worth your time to watch it. It needs a little bit more. I would have rated it higher uh, if it was shorter. Uh, I would get in that four territory, but it really is difficult getting through the first hour. But the second half of the film, it makes up for it almost entirely. But it doesn't make it a full four or five star film. So. So, now, what is next, you may ask? Well, we have uh, one of the listeners, he's from the Facebook page, uh, Derek Lamphere, uh, I hope I am saying your last name correctly, uh, because I would feel really bad. You've been a big supporter since you started listening to the show, and I asked you a little while back, hey, what film do you want me to do? Uh, Because I don't get many requests from the Facebook side of things. I thought, hell, let's go ahead and go with it. I mean, his exact wording was, Any chance for the Wraith, he says, If only so more of the world can enjoy the seminal Charlie Sheen, Randy Quaid vehicle. And automatically I thought, that's the perfect reason why we should have the Wraith on this podcast. 
An evil force took his life. An unearthly power has brought him back. He is a phantom, a wraith, a cosmic spirit given another chance. Uh, are you new in town? Yeah. Who's the kid? I turned my back and the next second he was there. Like magic almost. You ever seen one of those before? Nah, let's just add it to our collection. kid out there using his car to kill people not that it's such a big deal since it seems to be your gang he's got it in for You can find the Wraith out there. It's available on YouTube. There's ways for you to watch it there. Uh, also available for rent on things like Amazon Prime and iTunes. And it was on Netflix for a while. I think during this time period when it was asked, which I want to say is back in November. Uh, but uh, I wasn't able to get to it till now. Uh, and I really wish that... I had it available on Netflix right away and everybody could watch it from there. But there are plenty of ways that you couldn't see it. Uh, So I would definitely go out there, watch The Wraith. That one is definitely worth the watch alone uh, and doing it before the podcast rather than listening to the podcast and going back to it. So the other announcement that I have at the end of this podcast before I do the normal plugs for everything that's going on. Uh, actually, I have two announcements. If you guys remember back in the Alien vs. Predator episode, uh, Patrick, who joined me for that episode, he has actually started his own podcast on the paranormal and paranormal activity in people's lives, basically getting stories, talking about those emails. He just released the very first episode a little while back ago, and you can go check it out. Uh, it's called the Paranormal Pativity Podcast. Uh, it's available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all those places that you can get it. You can also go to Paranormal Paranormal Pat 64. I knew I was going to fuck this up. Uh, on Twitter and uh, on Facebook, you can also look for the Paranormal Pativity Podcast. I would definitely give that a listen if you're interested in the paranormal. Uh, it sounds like it's going to be very interesting for what he wants to do. And uh, yeah, I just want to make sure that you guys know about it. Uh, The second thing is, there is going to be a scheduling change in terms of this podcast. And I know this is me bringing back up at the last possible minute at the end of the podcast. But normally I release these shows every other Friday. 
Well, it's become a lot more difficult with the work schedule that I have. Uh, Make a long story short, I used to work from home, very easy to keep up the schedule. Now I don't. And so with travel, traffic, all that stuff, it becomes very hard to do the whole process of watching the movie, grabbing the clips, and recording the podcast, and make sure that I get enough sleep every night so that I can wake up bright and early in the morning uh, to record this for you guys. I love doing this podcast. I love talking about these movies, and I want to give you guys the best fucking episodes that you guys can have. So I feel like instead of recording these during the week and rushing everything and make sure that I do it, and sometimes recording them on two hours of sleep, I would rather have you guys have an episode where it's me at my best. Um, and so I'm going to turn to return uh, putting these out on Saturdays. So on Saturdays, I can do all the last minute things that I need to do. I can get it all set up. This one's going to be up a little later than I expected it to be. But the following episodes, they're going to be up a little earlier than this point on Saturday. Because if I can get it done earlier during the week, it'll still be scheduled for Saturday morning. But I'll have more time to kind of prepare myself to get everything recorded. Uh, with uh, So the regular schedule is just going to shift one day from Fridays to Saturdays. Starting with this episode and then two weeks from now, you'll have the another, next episode on that Saturday. I know a lot of people want to listen to them during the week. So... I can also move it so that we put it out on Mondays instead. Uh, It would still give me the weekends to do all the final touches on everything. So what I'd like you to do is go on to either Twitter or a Facebook page if you're listening to this. Or even on Instagram or the Horror Amino app. um, And just let me know. Would you prefer this to be a weekday release on releasing on like a Monday? Um, Or would you... Is it okay with recording and releasing on a Saturday? I don't see a big issue with that. But some people, they maybe they forget to download or don't know if it's out because they don't pay attention to podcasts on the weekends and they only listen to them on the week. I don't know. Maybe it's something different. But just please let me know. I think it's going to be fine for everybody. And I, I again, I apologize for kind of throwing this out there on this episode. But uh, I do need to make that change. And it's better for my sanity. It's better for the quality of the podcast that you get. So with that being said, you can always find the podcast on Twitter at T underscore T underscore podcast. You can find it on Facebook, facebook.com slash Terrible Terror Podcast. Terrible Terror Podcast on the Horror Amino app. Uh, you can find the podcast also on Instagram, Terrible Terror Podcast. Uh, and I've been doing, well, I've only done one so far, but I want to do more uh, little short reactions to stuff on the Stardust app. If you have the Stardust app, you can find Terrible Terror on there. I did one a real... They're only 30 seconds long, uh, but we went and saw Winchester, which is definitely going to be an episode of this podcast when it's released to VOD. Um, And... Uh, I did a little 30-second review. If you want a longer review, actually on that Paranormal Pativity, we did one right at the end where we did a quick, like, minute-long review without giving anything away. God damn, that movie's horrible. So, uh, hopefully later on this year, you'll have an episode of Winchester. Also, uh, can you guys please hit me up? This is the last thing that I want to ask you guys to do. Uh, for the month of April and May, I'm doing two months, 
I am doing video game horror movies. I have two movies already lined up. I know what they are, and one of them is probably more of an action movie than a horror movie, but uh, I have to talk about that movie uh, as well as the other one. It's going to be a director's very first time being on this podcast. But I want to know what are your two horror movies that are based on video games that you would like to see? And if you're saying, like, Silent Hill, uh, you have to pick the first one or the second one. I'm not going to do both. Uh, but I want to see what the fans suggest for the second two. So hit me up uh, on any of those platforms. Let me know. And uh, when those months come up, we're going to talk video game movies. Uh, and that's going to be a lot of fun. We're also going to do another sci-fi month this year. Uh, I had a lot of fun with it last time. I'd like to talk about another one of the Cube movies. Maybe do a Cube movie a year. Uh, and then, so if you have a sci-fi film, and I think somebody has suggested one to me. And I have to go back and remember what exactly he said. Uh, so... Uh, maybe that's going to be the other film that's there. I'm also forgetting one last thing. Uh, The last thing that I want to talk about was the reaction to the Jigsaw podcast um, and how excited and how thankful I am to Josh Stolberg for actually listening to my podcast and uh, having such a wonderful, warm reaction to it. uh, that's got to be me. I'm sorry. I'm gloating a little bit because I'm still on cloud nine for having that type of reaction from anybody within uh, outside of our podcasting community. You never think that somebody's going to listen. I have to thank Phantom Dark Dave for that too because he's the one that asked, "Can I share it?" And I was just like, "Oh yeah, share it." He's never going to listen to it, and then all of a sudden, boom, he listened to it and he loved it. So. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, without any other delay, um, that's it, this episode of the podcast. And normally I don't do this, but I fucking love this song. Uh, so uh, enjoy some stones uh, at the end of this episode. And uh, you can always just stop it now, but god damn, this is such a great song. Talk to you guys next time. Make sure you watch The Wraith, and we'll see you on uh, in two weeks on that Saturday. Bye. Right.
Introduce myself 